Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Um, hello. I realized I also did not introduce myself again. I used to, when I used to do Sunday announcements, was terrible about that. I would go the entire semester without ever saying my name. And so I was like, oh, people probably just think I'm just some random dude who just decides to come up here and say stuff. Uh, my name is Nate. I am on staff here um, with CCF. And I realized that uh, we haven't had a staff picture up here um, yet, this, yet this school year. Oh, wait, I forgot to unmute it. Hang on, hang on. There it is. There is, there we are. Um, where is this? Anybody? Porter Potty Graveyard. That's where we are. Um, no trespassing. We were actually told we had to take this picture really fast because there was a guy on a city truck that came up and said, you guys aren't really supposed to be here. Derek's like, I'll just give us two more minutes. So, uh, we, there, there it is. Um, that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, man, staff pictures are fun. Uh, yes, there are six of us here. Um, this is our full-time jobs. We, we, um, want to see you guys, want to spend time with you, want to pour into you, um, and we are here for you, so please feel free to reach out to us at any point. Um, also, this is, uh, this, the sermon slides, I found my old ones from the last sermon I gave, and <laughs> this picture was on there for some reason, and I decided to keep it. So, um, what is this? Do you guys, do you guys have any idea what this is? A manatee? Ooh, that's not too bad. That's kind of close. Artwork. Um, this is like my fifth grade paper mache project. This is a penguin. Um, that's, I don't. I'm very sorry. I. I didn't take any more art classes after this for this reason. I yeah, that's a penguin. Um, supposedly. My mom is proud. My mom's going to listen to this later, and she's going to be so proud. She's just going to imagine what it looks like. I think it's still in our basement somewhere. Um, so this has nothing to do with the sermon. Absolutely nothing. I just found this on the slide, and I thought, I'm going to leave it here. There's that. Okay, so if you have been with us here on Sundays this semester, um, then you will know that we have been honing in on the crucifixion, holding it up to the light, and seeing what shines through, as Reed stated in the introduction um, to the sermon series back in August. Sprinkled throughout these different perspectives, though, um, and views on the crucifixion, um, we're taking a dive into each of the different gospel accounts. So a uh, month or a month and a half ago, we heard from Kevin on Mark. Um, a few weeks ago, we heard from Leah on Matthew. Um, here in a few weeks, we'll hear from Natalie on John. Um, but today, uh, we're going to continue our journey through the gospels um, and look at the gospel of Luke. Um, I do love Reed's multiple titles, um, so here you go, you note-takers out there. Luke, um, the suffering servant, a prophet in our midst, bewildered at the top of Mount Crumpet, no stranger thing than an upside-down kingdom, don't shoot the messenger, crucify him instead, or coming up with titles is harder than I thought. Um, there you go. So before, before I really dive um, into Luke, there is something that I wanted to point out first. Um, I, I want you guys to take a second to think back um, to the last time you looked up at the clouds um, on one of those, those days where the, the puffy cumulus clouds fill the sky. 
Uh, maybe it was while you were riding in the passenger seat um, of a car on a long, long road trip, or maybe it was while you were laying um, in the grass during a warm spring day. Maybe it was just a quick glance up to see, see what the clouds looked like. Um, whatever it may be, you may remember seeing different shapes in the clouds, or maybe you at least remember watching cartoons where the kids do that when they look up at the clouds and see the different shapes. If you were with friends, maybe one of you saw a dragon, maybe the other saw a rabbit, maybe the other one saw a man fishing. You were all looking at the same cloud. Whatever you see does not change the composition of the cloud. You were just focusing on different aspects um, that created the image. This illustration reminds me of the Gospels. Um, each of the four Gospels were written by a different author, and they have a different perspective and a different agenda. Like any writer would, they're taking into consideration their prospective audiences and the points they're trying to make to those audiences through their accounts. Therefore, we should keep that in mind as we read them. The point is not to look at the little details of each gospel, panic to try to reconcile the contradictions and mesh them with the details of others in order to create some overarching like chronological history, like this happened here, there were two donkeys, which person actually appeared at the tomb first? Um, that's not the point. After all, the goal of looking at the clouds with your friends was not, after you shared what you saw, to then see a man with his pet rabbit um, sitting on the back of a dragon fishing. Like, that's not what you're going to see in the cloud. Um, the goal is rather to look at the details presented in each gospel and ask why that author chose to include those and what they say about the story he is writing, the characters within it, and the audience he is writing to. Um, thank you to Derek and Marty Solomon and other people for that perspective. Um, but I wanted to talk about that and just mention that um, as we dive into Luke. So then what makes Luke unique? There's the question. Um, what cloud images, what shapes arise as we look at his gospel? Um, before attempting to answer that question, I do think it is worth taking a second to note the apparent audience of Luke's gospel. Um, Luke makes it pretty clear in the first four verses right here. Um, it says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certain certainty concerning the things you have been taught. As we can see here, he's writing to Theophilus. Um, there's a speculation as to who that could be. Could be a person, could be like a Roman official um, or some sort of individual that Luke had come to know. Maybe Luke's trying to make a case for Jesus um, and show to these Romans that this new Christianity, this newfound Christian faith is not as crazy as they might think. Maybe, because um, after all, the intro does sound like some sort of argument, like it sounds like you're writing like a court case or something, like you're trying to make an argument. That's kind of what it sounds like at the beginning. Um, however, another possible theory is that maybe Theophilus represents a group of people rather than a person. Um, Theophilus literally translates in Greek to lover or lovers of God. Um, so perhaps this account is being written to anyone in this newfound church that had come about. That is something we can certainly relate to. Um, we are the church here um, regardless of who Luke is talking to, he does seem to have a couple themes that run through his account, um, and a couple cloud shapes take form, if you will. 
Um, of the two that stuck out most prominently, I'm only going to focus on one. So if you want to talk about the other one, you should come to sermon discussion. There's a plug, Thursday at 930. Um, we can talk about the other one here. So there are many names and identities attributed to Jesus. Healer, teacher, savior, you can name so many others, all of which are true. Um, but one that seems to stand out to me in Luke is that of a prophet. Um, I'm going to be jumping around a lot in the book, so um, I'll put a few scriptures up here, but don't feel like you need to like follow along um, to a T there in your Bibles or something. Um, there are a few instances where this idea of prophet seems to shine through most clearly to me. Um, one of the first occurs in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. Um, I'm not going to read all 14 verses, but I'll give you a quick little summary. Um, we find Jesus returning to his hometown of Nazareth, um, and he goes into the synagogue um, to do a reading. Um, and he reads from the passage of Isaiah, which is actually what um, Sarah was reading from earlier. Um, not the same passage, but from Isaiah. And after finishing, um, the people marvel. We see that a lot in the Gospels, the people marveling at Jesus, um, what they see. And Jesus presumes that they're going to ask him to do some sort of miraculous sign. Um, they want to see all these signs that he has performed um, in these other towns surrounding. Um, they want to see, um, to believe. Um, they want to see so he can prove himself. And this is how he responds. He says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, and none of them cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, midst he went away. He compares himself to Elijah and Elisha, some major prophets of the Old Testament, um, prophets that people would be very familiar with. Um, the story, however, shows these prophets healing Gentiles and pagans, uh, not the Jewish people, um, which, of course, would enrage the listeners there. Um, why is God healing the, the Gentiles, the pagans? Why is he not um, healing the Jews? Why does, he, why does Jesus point this out? So they drive, Jesus away, they drive Jesus away as they had done to so many of the prophets of old. Luke is asking us to see Jesus as a prophet um, like Elijah and Elisha who brings God's provision and healing. But this is not the only reference to the prophets. Um, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus raises from the dead the son of a widow. Um, I'm not going to read the entire story, but um, it very closely parallels a story in Elijah um, with Elijah in 1 Kings 17. Very, very similar um, here Luke is asking us to see Jesus as a prophet who raises the dead to life. These illusions may not seem obvious to us, like, where are you just picking out these random things? How would you even know to see these things in the Old Testament or whatever? But to these people, um, they would be much more clear and much more significant. Um, these were people who knew the stories of the Old Testament by heart. They would make these parallels way faster um, than many of us can quote like an applicable line from The Office or something. Like they would, know, they would know their Old Testament as well as we know a popular TV series. Even in Jesus' birth and death, we see a few parallels to the prophets. After receiving word from the angel that she was about to give birth to a son, Mary sings a song um, of praise known as Mary's Magnificat. Um, it's only featured in the Gospel of Luke, and it has a very close resemblance to a song sung by um, Hannah 
the mother of Samuel, um, when um, Samuel was about to be born. Samuel was a prophet in the Old Testament around the time of David and Saul. So um, here Luke is asking us to see that Jesus is a prophet like Samuel, whose birth is promised as good news to the world. Finally, the accounts of Jesus' of Jesus's death have some variations between the Gospels, but his painful final words in Matthew and Mark, asking why God has forsaken him, we've heard that from Kevin and Leah, his final words are a cry out to the God asking why he has been forsaken. Um, we don't hear that in Luke. Um, in Luke, his final words are, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke seems to portray Jesus through his passion as knowing and facing head-on what is coming his way, even though it leads to death. He knows his call and his mission. Luke is asking us to see that Jesus is a prophet, like most in Israel's history, who had to learn to accept their mission from God and would involve suffering and rejection. So given all these references to prophets, it's no wonder that when Jesus asks his disciples in chapter 9 who the people think he is, they respond by saying Elijah, or one of the prophets of old, a reincarnated prophet. Um, they would know all of these stories, they would see all of these parallels, and they would say, well, yes, of course, he is a prophet. So if Luke does emphasize Jesus as a prophet, then what does that mean? For the longest time, I think I equated prophet to predictor. Um, anybody else do that? Just think of a prophet as like a fortune teller. Um, yeah, basically telling the fortunes of God, like a magic eight ball created by the company of Yahweh or something. You guys know what a magic eight ball is? You guys remember? Okay. Okay. Just had to make sure. Um, but you know what I mean? Uh, they looked into their prophetic crystal balls and told the people what was coming down the pipe, but that's not really what they are. Prophets are messengers from God, um, a mouthpiece to them if you will. They bring a message oftentimes about what is currently going on, um, not necessarily just predicting the future. Sure, it may have implications for the future, and there may be predictions in it, but his primary purpose is to get his people to pay attention to what is happening right now and call them to faithfulness and repentance, not random answers to trivia questions um, so they can impress their friends down the road, um, so they can show what was predicted um, and just have these fun facts in the back of their pockets. That then, there, that then therefore then begs the question, um, what message then is Jesus, as God's prophet, bringing to the people? Um, and I think it's stated very well in Luke 17, 20 through 21. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. This statement comes in response to questioning from the Pharisees about when the kingdom of God would come. And it, and it makes me wonder what the people at large would think of when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God. I mean, kingdom is certainly a concept they would be familiar with. After all, over the last few hundred years, they have been carted around in captivity from one kingdom to the next, from Assyria to Babylon to Persia, um, and now ultimately to Rome. With it, each new kingdom certainly made itself known, um, whether that was by just completely destroying the kingdom before it. Um, it brings with it new rules, a new culture, um, and oftentimes um, a new ro ruler full of hubris. The line between one kingdom and the next was relatively clear just by taking a look around. It kind of reminds me, um, 
as we have each election, um, we have individuals talking about taking down the things of old and building up something new. Um, it just reminds me um, of that. So the people were familiar with this. But that's not what Jesus seems to say here about the kingdom of God. He says it is not coming in ways that you can observe, but rather it is in the midst of you. Some translations use the phrasing, it is within you instead of in the midst of you. That seems to be an exact flip from how the previous kingdom functions, doesn't it? Do you guys see what I'm saying? Because instead of bringing in a new culture on the outside and forcing the people to adapt to it, um, the kingdom seems to start within the heart and work outward to change the community around it. Um, it's a complete subversion, a complete flip um, from the kingdom that they had known. I think Jesus describes this concept well in chapter 13. He compares the kingdom, you may have heard this, um, to a mustard seed, but he also compares it to a bit of leaven that is slowly worked through some measures of flour. Um, the small bit of leaven slowly worked its way outward until all the flour was leavened. In much the same way, the kingdom begins within the heart and extends outward. With this idea of the kingdom of God in mind, Luke shows that the life, death, and ministry of Jesus exhibit what that change of heart looks like. Through the ministry of Jesus, the kingdom of God is present. As it says here, it is in the midst of you. But as we stated earlier, this kingdom Jesus was talking about didn't exactly look like the kingdom the people were expecting. Um, like I said earlier, the people knew their scriptures, um, especially the story of the Passover. It was one of the largest Jewish festivals of the year. Um, that commemorated their exodus from Egypt um, when Moses brought them out um, and they crossed the Red Sea. Um, every Jewish child would completely memorize the Passover and all of Torah, the first um, five books of the Old Testament. By the age of nine, um, the Jews at the time were expecting a Messiah from the line of David to come and bring them out of Roman captivity. That's what they were looking for with their Messiah. They were expecting another Moses to bring them out of Egypt, to the story they knew so well. And here he was, a descendant of the line of David, baptized in the Jordan River, the very same water that the people of Israel crossed over into the Promised Land so many years earlier. You can almost hear the people saying, you can almost hear them saying, yep, here he is, this is the guy we've been waiting for, Moses 2.0. You guys ever seen Spy Kids 3D? Anybody? This is the guy, all right? This is him. They're leading them to the promised land, okay? But that's not what happens, is it? That's not what we see. Instead of breaking away and starting a new physical kingdom, this new Moses states that kingdom is already in their midst. What does that mean? Instead of bringing a message of judgment against Rome, he's healing the sons of Roman centurions, chapter 7. If we put ourselves in the shoes of the people with the expectation they had, regarding the role of the prophets, and especially the Messiah, then it, wouldn't, we, we wouldn't, wouldn't we also then be confused? Um, like, what is going on? Who is this man? I mean, earth to Jesus, I still see Caesar's face on the coins that we use. So I ask again, when is the kingdom of God coming? To which he replies, it is in the midst of you. Hmm. You guys ever seen The Grinch? You've seen The Grinch? Yeah, you have. Um, it's one of my favorite movies. Uh, we watch it in the Komar household every Christmas growing up we did. Um, I, I love it. I, it's one of the movies that I can quote a vast majority of it um, without shame. 
Yes, that's actually what I was getting at, Kyle. Thank you, Kyle. Um, I'm not talking about the original, although with my mother-in-law present, I shall not knock the original. It is great. Um, I'm also not talking about the weak attempt with Benedict Cumberbatch a few years ago. Sorry, not sorry. Um, it was fine, it's just not the same. I'm talking about the Jim Carrey version back in 2000. Um, whether or not you are familiar, I will set the scene for you. The Grinch hates Christmas and the town of Whoville after feeling cast out by them as a child, right? Um, it makes the thing for Martha May, which is really nice and sweet, and then all the kids make fun of him, and he gets cast out. He devises a plot to steal all of their Christmas presents by invading their homes with his dog, Max, dressed as Santa and Rudolph, respectively. On Christmas Eve, his plot is successful. He steals everything, um, everything down to their last can of hoo hash. All of it is gone. He then climbs up to the top of Mount Crumpet to dump his load of gifts. But as the sun rises, he expects to hear the wailing and crying of those in Whoville below. Um, so he stops and he listens. There he is. Right there. Yep, there he is. Uh, he's expecting to hear the wailing and crying of those in Whoville below, um, mourning the loss of Christmas as they know it. But instead of crying, what does he hear? Singing. He hears singing. All of this time spent plotting against the Who's only to result in the same heartfelt, joyful song that they sang every Christmas. It was certainly not what the Grinch expected as he stood on the mountain, incredulous. Uh, in his mind, he could only conceive of one possible reaction to the stolen gifts. And rightly so, considering his years of experience in dealing with the Who's of Whoville. Although a ridiculous example, this is how I picture the people of Israel. Um, for years, they had expected a Messiah to come and deliver them from captivity in Rome, to establish a new kingdom. They hoped, they prayed, and this is their Messiah? They are standing incredulous on the summit of Mount Crumpet, um, bewildered by Jesus' prophetic message of the kingdom is here. It is in the midst of you. What are they to do now? How is this man bringing with him the kingdom of God? It was certainly not the way they expected but I think Luke gives us a good picture. So sure, we know the story, the stories of Jesus being born in a lowly manger um, and riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Those are very true. Um, but Luke, I think, shows even more than that. He spends so many chapters show, showing Jesus caring for those around him. He welcomes the outsider by eating with tax collectors and sinners. He tells parables where the outsiders are in the right, like the Good Samaritan. Um, and countless others. There are multiple references to women who follow Jesus throughout the book. He names them and exhibits their contribution to the gospel story, which is a big deal in this society. He heals on the Sabbath, much to the dismay of the religious leaders. He instructs his disciples to love their enemies and rebukes the self-righteous religious leaders. I think N.T. Wright summarizes it well when he says, the kingdom that Jesus preached and lived was all about a glorious, uproarious, and absurd generosity. Think of the best thing you can do for the worst person and go ahead and do it. Think of something you would really like someone to do for you and do it for them. Think of the people whom you are tempted to be nasty and lavish generosity on them instead. These instructions have a fresh spring-like quality. They're all about a new life, bursting out energetically like flowers growing through concrete and startling everyone with their color and vigor. 
Once again, Jesus' prophetic message comes to mind. The kingdom of God is in their midst through his ministry. It begins with the change in the heart and diffuses outward to the community around it. Of all the qualities highlighted in this new kingdom, I think the most powerful and prominent is that of humble self-sacrifice and the cost of discipleship. At least five, maybe even ten, there's quite a few. I started counting them and then I stopped counting. But there's many different times in the book of Luke where there are references to the idea of leaving everything behind in order to follow Jesus. The disciples leave everything when they're first called from their fishing boat to follow him. Jesus sends out his disciples twice, each time instructing them not to take anything with them, but rather to go in trusting faith. He instructs the people to deny themselves and take up their crosses daily. Some who are last will be first. Some who are first will be last. He who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. These are only a few of the many statements Jesus gives about what it means to truly follow him. Even the major rebukes against the chief priest center around their self-righteous behavior. Like, sure, they're following a law to the T. They're doing everything that they should do, but most of it was for show. Jesus calls them actors and hypocrites. He accused them of being whitewashed tombs, the appearance of cleanliness on the outside, but dead on the inside. Recall the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who went to pray in the temple. The Pharisee looked up to heaven and thanked the Lord that he was not like the lowly tax collectors, while the tax collector beat his breast and cried out for forgiveness with his face down. Following his final breath, all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. Um, That is from Luke 23. And I think it calls back to this story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Um, they went home beating their breasts justified. In that moment, they had gotten a glimpse of the kingdom in their midst. But he didn't just command these things from his disciples and the people that followed him. He lived them out. He knew what lay ahead for him in Jerusalem, and yet he continued on the path toward the city anyway. He prayed for the cup of his forthcoming death to be removed from him, but ultimately said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Upon his arrest, Jesus went quietly. When one of the disciples cut off the ear of one of the soldiers who arrested him, he healed the man. While being mocked and beaten, Jesus spoke no ill words to his captors. While standing before Pilate and Herod and listening to false accusations made by the chief priests, Jesus offers no rebuttal. After Pilate found Jesus innocent but caved to the demands of the people for an execution, Jesus did not plead his case. As he was being crucified, he asked for forgiveness on behalf of those crucifying him. The soldiers mocked him, urging him to come down from the cross. He didn't, even though he could have. Um, This this scene of the cross and of this mocking um, actually does remind me of the Black Panther. You guys seen the Black Panther before? Um, I'm going to try to show a clip from it. We will see if it works. Um, Warning in advance, there is a bit of violence in the clip, Um, but I wanted to give you an idea. So this is the image that I get in my head when I think of, um, when I think of Jesus on the cross, um, the, hang on, I gotta get back here. 
cannot make this work. There we go. Um, I think of, oh my gosh, guys. I totally am ruining the effect right now. <laughs> this sucks. Um, there we go. Okay. Um, this is what I envision. I envision the soldiers standing next to him, um, this king of the Jews, this so-called Messiah who is to bring the new exodus to the people. I picture them saying, is this your king? Is this your king, the one who is beaten here, the one who is dying on this cross, the one who is supposed to lead you into your new kingdom is here? Is this your king? Those people standing by can only look on in disbelief as their hopes in their leaders fade with every dying breath of Jesus. No doubt these questions swirled in the minds of the people um, of Israel as they saw Jesus on the cross. The mocking inscription above him on the cross said, the king of the Jews, and it was filled with irony. As unexpected as the sounds of the joyous songs down in Whoville, this was the suffering Messiah, and this was his upside-down kingdom. This was the prophet's message. It was not a kingdom of power, of self-preservation, of self-righteousness, but of rather, rather of compassion, humility, and sacrifice. As Reed discussed, it is not the right-handed power of the kingdoms of the day, but rather the left-handed aroma of invitation. The people expected a new Moses to bring an exodus from Rome, but perhaps they got a different type of exodus. Yes, through his resurrection, he conquered death, as we often discuss, but we shouldn't simply skip ahead without paying attention to the significance of his death. I wonder if his crucifixion brought with it an exodus from the self-serving attitude that pervaded the culture and the empire surrounding the people. Maybe it is a reminder to remember where they came from and what they were called to be from the beginning. A people who are willing to trust and follow, being hospitable and compassionate to those around them. Maybe it is the same reminder and exodus opportunity for us. From the words of Isaiah 53 that Sarah read us earlier, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him iniquity of us all, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The prophet delivered and lived out his message. This is the kingdom of God in our midst. I know these ideas are not new concepts. Um, we hear them all the time in church growing up. Yes, Jesus loves and sacrifices, and he wants us to do the same, right? But I wonder if we're actually living that out. I mean, look at the disciples. During the Last Supper, Jesus was speaking of his coming death and giving instructions to them. In the middle of these crucial moments, the disciples break out into a discussion about which of them is the greatest. I think Kevin highlighted this um, in Mark. Jesus is about to die. He's giving instructions. Um, these are people who have been following him from the beginning, seeing his kingdom firsthand, and this 
is what they say they start arguing about who is the greatest. Despite all they have seen and heard, they are still missing the point. We live in a culture where individualism reigns, where the way to get ahead is to promote yourself in the best way you can and get people to notice you, where you earn and deserve your accomplishments, where we do activities just to put them on a resume to show others how righteous or talented we are. We thrive on likes, views, and reviews. How often do we decide not to help out because it is inconvenient? If we felt called to a job or a new place, would we be willing to trust and follow? Or would we rationalize it away with excuses about bad timing or maybe lacking in abilities? Do we try to hear the voices of those in need around us or do we keep our blinders on, full steam ahead for the plans we have set for ourselves? Do we pray for our enemies? I know that I don't. Maybe I can pray for my own ability to love my enemies. But have I ever prayed for the success of my enemies? Doubt it. Do we do things because they are the right thing to do because we know, or because we know someone is watching? Remember Jesus rebukes the religious leaders? Remember his rebukes of the religious leaders? Do we take time to hear and listen rather than waiting for the next available silence to try to get our point across? Do we put Jesus in a box to fit the mold we expect him to? Are we looking for the next right-handed leader or to a self-sacrificing servant? Are we just living our lives to get to heaven? If what Jesus says is true, then the kingdom is here. Christ's life and ultimately his death show us what it looks like. It wasn't what was expected, but if the first century AD is anything like it is today, it is exactly what was and still is needed. Um, my mom is a strong woman. Uh, when she was seven months pregnant with me, uh, she came home from work to an empty home uh, and found herself with a new identity as a single mother. Uh, over the next few years, she worked hard to make her way, uh, make a way for her and I. She went back to school to get a degree in order to acquire a job that can make enough money to support both of us. She worked and took classes during the day came home to take care of me during the evening and did her homework after I went to bed. The next day, she would do it all again. She oversaw apartments to get a discount in rent in order to afford an apartment for us to live in. She had to sacrifice time with me during the day in order to make sure we could make ends meet. I was talking to her yesterday um, about this whole story, um, and I asked her what was going through her head during this time. Um, her response... Uh, was that there were certainly times that she felt frustrated and she felt alone. But above all, she was driven and committed to giving, the, giving me the best life that she could. She told me that now she has no desire to go back and get a master's degree. She has no desire to go to school. But when during that time, um, she knew she had to for me and she had this drive. Um, she gave everything she had to make sure I was taken care of in my mom, I see the kingdom of God. I see the kingdom of God in Keevan moving international students all summer long. I see it in Noah Jensen not taking a day off in a year just to make sure a child and help at home could get up in the morning and get ready for bed at night. I see it in my wife, who without hesitation agreed to move to Kirksville because I felt called to a job here at CCF. 
I see it every time someone in CCF talks about how they find community because of that one person that invited them to a service or an event. I saw it when donors of CCF gave during COVID to support international students who couldn't afford rent during the summer because on-campus jobs were shut down. I see it when we ask about someone's day and genuinely want to hear the answer. I see it when we listen, when we forgive, when we love one another as we love ourselves, no matter who they are. So the question I have is, will we choose to live out the prophetic message that Jesus brought with him about the presence of the kingdom of God? Or will the prophet be rejected in his hometown? Will we be the bit of leaven in the flour that leavens the whole batch? Or the whitewashed, whitewashed tombs appearing clean and righteous on the outside, but dead inside? The kingdom of God begins in the heart and extends outward. It is the gravity that pulls heaven down. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you. We thank you for your kingdom. Um, we thank you that it is, it is not the kingdom that we expected. It is not the kingdom that we are used to. It is a kingdom that serves, um, that loves those around them. Uh, may we be a part of that kingdom. May that kingdom uh, begin within us as we reach outward, begin within our hearts as we as we pour out to those around us. Um, Lord, we, we cannot do this without you. Um, we thank you for the blessings that you give. Um, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.